Ephesians 1, we'll start reading verse number 19. Let's read, uh, actually start in verse number 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So right off the bat, Paul is praying that God would give us understanding and illumination, that the lights would be turned on, that we may know the hope of his calling. So that is what Paul is praying for, that we, we would know and have an understanding. Verse 19 of what? Of the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ. So we have this great, mighty power. So he's praying that this power to usward, that we would know this great power that is in us, according to this great power which was in Christ, was wrought in Christ. How? When he raised him from the dead and saved him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that dwelleth, or that filleth all in all. So, verses 21, 22, and 23 is Paul telling us how lofty the Lord has set him up. Okay, So, uh, far above principalities, dominions, and put everything under his, under his feet. But don't, don't miss the, what he was talking about there. Um, and, and why he lifted him up, because that power. So he's talking about the, that we might know this power that God works in us, and it's the same power that was wrought in Christ when he was raised from the dead. So that, that's the main theme of these passages that I read, that there was a power that works in us, and that's the same power that was wrought in Christ when he was raised from the dead. Right? And then verse number, or chapter 2, and it says, in you, and in my Bible, hath he quickened is in italics. That was supplied by the translators. So um, it would say, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, or you who has been quickened were, were dead in trespasses and sins. So now we kind of see a parallel. God said, or Paul says here, that God, he's praying that we would understand something about what God has done to us and in us. There is a great power working in us, and it's the same power that was wrought in Christ when he rose from the dead. And you who were dead. So now we have a, a sort of a parallel that Christ had died and was risen from the dead, and he said, and you were dead. Well, how were we dead? Well, verse number two, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So, remember in the end of chapter 1, Paul was talking about how high Christ is lifted up. Well, now he's talking about how low that we were. So there's another sort of parallel. Christ had been lifted up to the very, very heights of glory, 
And we were down at the very bottom, walking according to the ways of the devil, dead in trespasses and sins. Even We were the, by nature the children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and has risen us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ, for by grace are ye saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So what did God do? In us. Well, that's why I want to preach on tonight. It's on the subject of irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And this is what God has done in us. This is what the passage is telling us. That we were in a terrible situation. A terrible situation. Dead in trespasses and sins. Walking in the ways of the devil. Walking according to the, the spirit of the age. I don't know where I would be without the grace of God. I know I wouldn't. I know I wouldn't be here. I know I wouldn't be worshiping the Lord Jesus. Uh, might be in jail. Might be dead. I, I've, a lot of the people I went to school with, um, a lot of them are uh, in bad shape. A lot of them passed on. A lot of them, and several of them, got in trouble with the law. I don't know where I would have been apart from God's grace, because I had my conversation in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and whereby nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the way we all were. That's where we all had found ourselves. Not, not just out of the way, but we were without ability within ourselves to write our own lives. It's like one guy said that it's like trying to pull yourself up out of quicksand by pulling the back of your shirt collar. Now, if you're down in quicksand, you grab hold of your shirt and try to pull yourself up. That's the condition that we were in. We were dead. We were in a hopeless situation. But God, verse 4, but God, that's our only hope. But God, who is rich in mercy, when we were dead, quickened us or gave us life. And so the point here, if we put all this passage together, is Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding. That we might be able to know and understand what the Bible teaches about the grace of God. That we might be able to understand with the spirit of wisdom, which is the Holy Spirit, that we might know the revelation and the knowledge of Him. That we would have our eyes enlightened, that the lights would be turned on, and we might know the hope of our calling, the riches of his glory, and understand the great power he showed to, to us who believe. This mighty power, this resurrection power that was wrought in Christ when he raised from the dead was wrought in us when he has quickened us together. So, Christ rose from the dead. He sat at the right hand of the Father, far above all principalities and powers, has all things under his feet. So he is the head of the body, the fullness that filleth all in all. 
And God took us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, and by his grace quickened us, which means he gave us life with Christ by grace, and raised us up together to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this is God's grace working in us to, to give us life. To give us life. Well, tonight, um, I kind of want to just follow the, the pattern starting with man and see the terrible condition of man. The terrible condition of man. Um, and we saw a little bit of that there in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, that we're in a bad situation. But then we we're going to look at the sovereign, gracious call of the Lord. The gracious, sovereign, gracious call of the Lord. And lastly, the inward work of the Spirit in His effectual call. And I kind of use the London Baptist Confession of Faith as a guide for the outline, and I'll be summarizing some of the points there and some of the points made in um, those canons of Dort that we talked about a couple weeks ago. But, but I'm sort of summarizing some of the statements that were made in that as we go through this message. So first of all, let's think about the terrible conditions of man. In this study on the doctrines of grace, we, we've seen that humanity has fallen. Adam broke the law that God, God put Adam in the, the garden in this covenant of works, and Adam represented us. He was our federal head, and he represented us. And, and if Adam succeeded, then we, then we had all the benefits of Adam keeping that covenant. Look, Adam failed. We know he failed. He ate of the fruit, and, and in that day he died, and, and he brought humanity into a fallen state, a natural sinful condition. We inherited both Adam's guilt and a sinful nature. And so we're born both unable and unwilling to follow Christ. By nature, that's how we are. By nature, we want to sin, we want to do wrong things. By nature, children have to be told not to steal. Um, we have to tell them not to lie. We have to tell them to honor and obey their parents and, and so forth. We have to tell them all these things because by nature, if you let children just do whatever they want to do, they will, they will by and large go the wrong way. Um, that's just our nature. That we don't want to do the things that we know that we're supposed to. And even when we know what we're supposed to do, when someone tells us not to do something, we are more tempted to do it. And that's with anything. It could be any kind of law. You might, you might not have any desire to have any type of uh, dessert or anything, but if you go to the doctor and the doctor says you can't have any desserts, what's the first thing that you want when you leave the doctor's office? You think, well, I'll just have one more for the road, one more and it won't hurt me, and then I'll start. Right? Why? Because they told you not to. And because they tell you not to, you want to do it. You know, the, the, sometimes just telling somebody not to do something just puts that in their mind, and that's what the, the thing that they want to do. Why is that? Because we are contrary to the law. We're rebellious. That's why I said I don't know where I'd be without the grace of God, because by nature, I am opposed to 
I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't like, by nature, I don't like anybody, including my Creator, telling me what to do. I want to have, I want to do what I want to do. Well, that's where we are. Prone to evil, in bondage to sin, guilty before God and Adam. And even the good things that we do are far from sufficient to bring us to a saving knowledge of God. Now, that's not to say all people are as bad as they possibly could be, but, but the good things that we do, giving to charity, taking care of our family members, taking care of parents, you see somebody on the side of the road and you pull over and, and help them out, you know, that, those are just good neighborly things that, that people do. But that's far from sufficient to bring us to salvation. It's far from sufficient even to give us a saving knowledge of God. The natural light that we have, God's common grace in the natural law to see what is good and just, is held in unrighteousness, making us without excuse. So, there are some things that people know are true and right. They know what is good and just. I read something uh, this week that was written by an atheist. And this atheist was talking about um, some moral problem. And everything that he wrote was, was accurate and true about justice, about right, and about wrong in this particular matter. Well, where did he get that idea? Well, it was from natural law. And even though that he, had, he was very perceptive in the things of justice, you can go to law school and learn the principles of justice, and those principles of justice would uh, correlate with many of the Old Testament laws and, and justice. And so that, that's what we might call natural law, that, that God has given us as human beings an understanding of, of right and wrong and justice according to, um, according to God's laws. We're made in the, the image of our Creator to see what is just and good and right. But we hold that in unrighteousness. We hold that um, making, making us without excuse. So that's a terrible condition that we find ourselves in. Guilty before God. Well, the second thing we want to look at tonight is the sovereign, gracious call of our Lord. Now, I had to bring that in just so we could see the glory of the, the effectual call in the Lord Jesus Christ or by the Holy Spirit. We are in a bad situation, but that shows us how gracious God is. Now, I don't say these things just to, to stomp on everybody's toes this evening, but the Lord shows us these things, the darkness of the reality of where we find ourselves in order that we might see the graciousness and greatness of God. God is great in mercy and for his own good purposes chose to save um, people, a certain number of humanity, to show grace and mercy to them and adopt these sinners and make them his own children. He chose to make his enemies holy and without blame. In verse 7 of chapter 2, it says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. That God is so gracious, he took sinners who had broken his law, 
who are disobedient and not just saves them, but calls us to heavenly places and gives us an inheritance so that in the ages to come, so in, in multitude, millions of years down the road, He will show us the exceeding riches of His grace. He will show us His grace. He will show us His kindness through Jesus Christ. So God will forever be showing His people how good He is and how gracious He is and how kind He is through Jesus Christ. Oh, what a God that we serve. What a glorious salvation that we have that He has called us from the depths of depravity and sinfulness and wretchedness because He is rich in mercy and He is loving toward us that He would take us and bring us and quicken us together. He would reconcile us and, and not only save us, but show us His riches of grace and show us His kindness and, and bestow upon us uh, merciful kindness after blessing after blessing. So God saved us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's think about how He did that. Well, G- the Father chose to save a number of people and then covenant together with the Son to save us in the hope of eternal life which God cannot lie promised before the world began it says in Titus 1-2 so God promised before the world began who did he promise to? who was this promise made? well it can't be us because it was before the world Well, this promise was a covenant between the Godhead that God promised before the world began to save a people. And the Father, because He, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Promise before the world began. The Son volunteered to come into His own creation. Jesus, who created the world, came down inside of his own creation, took upon flesh, and offered his sinless life as a substitute for fallen humanity. He lived the perfect life of righteousness for us. And so the Father punished Jesus on the cross. So Jesus was there on the cross as our substitute, and the Father um, poured out his wrath. The, the, The sword of justice fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ as He paid for our sins. Well, that takes care of one problem. I'm a sinner. Well, how do I get rid of my sins? Well, Jesus Christ came to pay for those sins. He took them away. That solves one problem. They're in the cross. He died for my sins. Well, it also says without righteousness, we won't enter the kingdom of God. So that's another problem that I have. Jesus may take away my sin, but I'm not righteous. Well, that perfect righteousness of Christ where he lived and his his obedience, the Bible says that he imputes that righteousness to our account. So, that takes care of the second problem. Jesus died for our sins and took away all of our guilt, but then he gives us his righteousness. 
And so now I don't have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect for me. I don't have to keep the law to keep God happy because Jesus kept the law for me. My sins are gone, and now I'm made righteous. So that takes care of another problem. But we still got one more problem. That happened 2,000 years ago. That happened in Jerusalem. We're in West Virginia in 2020. How, how, did, how did the one thing connect to the other? How do we receive such a salvation? How does one go from the knowledge that they're dead in trespasses and sin to receive such a salvation? But that's the, the next problem is, is how can we be saved? Well, this doctrine of, of irresistible grace and what we saw here in Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul is describing how we are saved. That sinners, by God's grace, are converted to faith in Christ because God comes in great power and gives us life, gives us faith. For by grace are you saved, in verse number 8, through faith. How are we saved? We're saved by grace. Grace is just an undeserved gift. So God saves us by grace. Well, how? Through faith. Faith is like, as one man said, uh, an outstretched hand of a beggar. It is not a work that we do. It is the knowledge of our condition, the knowledge of God's promises, assent to those promises, and then trusting in those promises, trusting in Christ. And so God quickens us, or He gives us life. He opens our eyes that we can see, as, as Paul said there, that the eyes of our understanding are enlightened, that we can see the truth about ourselves, we can see the truth about God. He changes our hearts that we agree with God. That we agree with God that, that I'm a sinner and that He is a Savior. We agree with God about our condition. We agree with God in what He says about us. And we receive Christ by faith. And that faith is not even our own faith. It's a faith that He gives us. That is the irresistible grace of God. It is God effectually calling. I kind of like that better to describe it an effectual call, a powerful call of the gospel. It is God calling us by His sovereign, wonderful grace unto life. As the one confession said, it must be wholly ascribed to God, though, who has chosen from His own eternity in Christ, so He confers upon them faith and repentance, rescues us from the power of darkness, translates us into the kingdom of His own Son, that we might show forth the praises of him who has called us in his marvelous light. So those whom God has predestined to life, he is pleased and appointed in his accepted time to effectually call us by his word and by his spirit out of a state of sin and death, which we are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. God calls us unto salvation. 
You ever wonder why if you have a, a church full of people and the same message is preached and to one, one person, then they might not even listen. But to another person, it's as if God is speaking to them. And you can think maybe uh, when the Lord saved you. And it might, might not have been in the church service. It might have been you know, wherever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be in the church service. But you can think how your eyes were just open to the truth of who you were. And it may not have been like a flash of lightning. You might not even be able to recall the exact moment. But you know that you, that, that you have, your eyes have been enlightened. That, that you see yourself in, in the light of Scripture. You see yourself now as the Bible describes you. And it wasn't offensive, but it was truth. Instead of saying, well, who do you think you are? Tell me what to do. You say, Lord, you're right. I have broken your law. I have no hope without you. Well, that is the work of God who is effectually called. So in the service full of people where you might have one person that it just goes in one ear and out the other and somebody else hears and receives that truth and, and it's as if God himself is speaking. Well, why is that? Well, is the, is the effectual, the powerful call of the gospel. So we are commanded by God, we're told God to go preach the gospel to everyone. We can go tell everyone, come to Christ, all you who are, are burdened and, and labor and are heavy laden, come to Christ and find rest. Come to Christ and be saved. Come and, uh, and, and buy and eat without money, without price. Come to the waters of life and drink freely and be saved. This is the gospel call that can go forth to all people. I can tell all people to come and be saved and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that is, that is a general call. That's what the gospel says, to believe. The effectual call, the powerful call, is the call of God. This is where God calls from uh, uh, the death unto life. This is the call of God um, where we read about where he quickened us together. You can think of it like this in, in, in John chapter number 11 where Lazarus is laying in the tomb. Lazarus is laying in the tomb dead, and Jesus comes forth and says, Lazarus, come forth. That was a supernatural work of God. That wasn't 50% Lazarus and 50% Jesus. That was 100% God. It wasn't even 99% and 1%. It was 100% God. It was a monergistic work, as the theologians say. It was an effectual, powerful call. And it carries with it this grace that enables us to answer the call and embrace Christ as he is offered in the gospel. And so that other problem that I was talking about, well, how are we saved? Well, it is the Holy Spirit that applies the saving grace of God to the soul. It is the application of this atonement to those 
whom Christ died. He's effectually called. We are effectually called by God. Well, how does he do that? Well, by his word and by spirit. So the Bible is very clear that sinners receive Christ by receiving the word and the good news of salvation. So the way that the Holy Spirit does this is by means, by the word of God. And so the word is preached, or the word is is read, and this word is applied to us. We are given life. We are giving, given faith. And this is worked out in us by the uh, Holy Spirit. So we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what is that? Well, it's knowledge, assent, and trust. That's what faith is. If you remember those three things, that's faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. We know what God has promised. We know what it is. We assent to that truth. And then we trust in Christ. So it's, it is a head knowledge. You have to know about Jesus if you're going to have faith in him, right? So there is a knowledge. But it's more than just a knowledge. You assent to that truth. You sort of agree with it. You agree with what God says about you. And you assent that, yes, Jesus is a Savior. And then you trust him. B.B. Warfield said to believe in God is not merely to assent to his word, but with a firm and unwavering confidence to rest in security and trustfulness upon him. I like that last part. An unwavering confidence to rest in security and trustfulness upon him. Do you have that tonight? Faith is not... Can I do more and and hang on tighter? Faith is an unwavering confidence to rest in the security and trustfulness of uh, of Him. And so the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to hear this gospel, gives us faith, He gives us eyes to, to see, He gives us a heart to know and understand, He gives us a will to assent to that truth, and then he gives us the, the faith to trust him. And so all this doctrine teaches us that it is God who is working in us to be saved. It is a calling by the word, applied by the spirit, a powerful calling unto salvation, and it's without repentance. It's not a call that's subject to change. It's not something that God is going to withdraw. It's not a... Um, a one-time offer that you can take or keep. Um, this, is a, this is an effectual call unto salvation. And it's not subject to change. God doesn't change his mind in this. And so thirdly and lastly this evening, we're going to see the inward work of the Spirit in his effectual call. So this is really what it is, the Spirit working in us, the Spirit working in his people the inward work of the Spirit in His effectual, powerful call. So, first of all, He enlightens the minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. We saw that, as, as Paul said in verses 17 and 18, that it is the work of the Spirit to enlighten our eyes. And not just understand things, but savingly understand things. 
There are lost, there are people who don't know Christ at all. They're not saved, but they've graduated and got the, uh, theological degrees. They know Greek and Hebrew. And they could say this, they could break down the passage and understand the grammar of the language. It's not like it's a foreign language to people that they just can't understand. That's not what it's saying. It's saying a spiritual understanding. That they can see the words, but they're just words just like any other text. It might as well be uh, the Odyssey or, or some other ancient text. But the, the effectual call gives us a, a saving knowledge of these things to where we know them and assent to them and trust in them. Another thing that the Spirit of God does is He takes away the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel 36. And let's, let's look at that one, um, Ezekiel 36. We see the promise in the Old Testament of the New Covenant. And so it says, Ezekiel 36, 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So here's a heart operation that the Spirit of God performs. He gives us a new heart. This is now a stony heart. That's a hard heart. It's a stubborn heart. That's just the heart we're born with. Just obstinate. Maybe think about maybe when you were a little kid and, and mom and dad tried to get you to, to do something and you just threw a temper tantrum, you were not going to do it. Well, that's just a, a hard, hard heart. A stony heart. Not thankful for what mom and dad did for you, not thankful for what they gave you, but just obstinate, and just don't want to do what you're told to do. Well, that, we never grow out of that. We just learn to, we learn to hide it a little bit better than kids do, but we never grow out of that. You can't grow out of it. Well, how, how, how do you get rid of it? Well, God will give you a new heart. Not a reformation. He'll, just, he'll give you a new one. He'll put it within us. This heart of flesh, this tender heart, this yielding heart. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That, that's how it, one thing he does in this effectual call. He doesn't try to just convince us. He does this operation within us to take away that heart of stone and give us a tender heart of flesh. The other thing we find here in verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. So he renews our will by his almighty power. And then, he, call, then he, he gives us that will to determine to do what is good and draw us to Christ. So we get it backwards if we think that we have to do good in order that the Lord might save us. The only reason that we desire to keep the law is because God has saved us. Otherwise, we would have no desire to do that. It says there in verse 27, I put my spirit with you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's why 1 John says that you know, keeping the commandments is, is a way of assurance of our salvation, not because 
we keep them in order to stay saved, but it's an evidence of the Spirit of God working in us because we're changed, we're different. It's His operation in us. So the faith that we have is an is a evidence of that the Spirit's working in us. Walking in His ways is an evidence that the Spirit is within us. That is, that's what He does. He changes our minds. He repents us. Repenting is to turn, but it's also a changing of mind, not just the change of an idea, but such a change that we no longer love what we once loved and, and we repent of our doings and of ourself and our self-righteousness. So it is God who's repenting us. He's changing us. He's changing our minds. If you read through the scriptures, how it's described the operation of the Spirit illuminating the mind, which is sort of turning the lights on that we can, we can see what was dark. Regeneration, being born again. Quickens means death to life. In the power of resurrection. He quickens the heart. He softens the heart. We're called a new creature in Christ or a new creation. Heart circumcision, it says in the Old Testament. All these things are supernatural operations of changing that God does in us. And the last thing in this point is that uh, the confession said that uh, so that you come most freely being made willing by his grace. And so in Psalm 110 verse 3, be our last scripture for this evening, Psalm 110 verse number 3, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. That's what God does. You know, people who object to this doctrine, when I think it might just be because it's called irresistible grace, maybe, that they say, well, you're, you're saying that God drags you kicking and screaming and, and saves people against their will. That's not what the Bible teaches on this subject. What the Bible teaches is that if God doesn't come to us, we would never come to him at all. But what God does, because he is loving and kind, and gracious as he comes to us. And he says, come to me and be saved. And there we are, hard-hearted, obstinate, stubborn, rebellious. And someone says, come to Christ and be saved. And, and we laugh and we scoff or we ignore. But one of those times, God, someone says, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And the Spirit of God, using that word, comes and gives us life. And opens our eyes. And it's like Jesus saying, Lazarus comes forth. It's, it's Doug, come forth. And you hear that word. And he, he makes us willing. He changes that heart of hearts to make us willing and and we see it and say, well, well, yes, I'll come. It's not the effectiveness of the preacher or the presenter of the gospel. It's not a moral argumentation that we just grab onto. But it's God working in us in a delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and indescribable way. So much so that, see, God works in us and makes us willing. So much so that it is said that we are to believe and repent 
And if you ask someone what the Lord, what has happened, somebody says, well, you're a different person. What's happened to you? Well, I believe in Jesus. I've turned from my sins. I believe in Jesus. Why? Because you have. How, though, is the question. How did you believe? How did you turn? We made you willing. He, he changed your heart. He changed your mind. He changed the way that you look at things by his wonderful grace. And you truly believe and you truly repent and you truly rest in him. Why? Because you're a new person now by God's grace. And how did, what is the means by which he does that? Through the preaching of the word. So it, it's, it's a, that's why the, the, it was described as delightful, astonishing, and mysterious. Because God in his grace completely changes us. And so faith is a gift of God. Not just because it was accept, offered to man and accepted, but because it was conferred to us. It was infused into us. That God gives us this power, this ability, this will to hear and to believe. Because he works in us both to will and to do. And so he produces the will, he produces the belief, he produces the faith, and he provides all that is necessary for us to believe. And so this is such a gracious and wondrous doctrine because it is not left upon our own devices and our own power and our own ability, but it, it is God who saves us completely and fully. And God doesn't change his mind. So tonight, if you are saved, Think about this for a moment, that the Lord Jesus Christ died for your sins. The Father loved you before the foundation of the world. And the Spirit comes and gives you life and gives you faith and, give, and opens your eyes and illuminates your mind and indwells you and gives you this faith to cling to Christ, to, to know him and to ascend to him and then to, to rest in his promises all by God's glorious grace. And so you are kept by the hand of the Father and you are protected in the hand of the Son and you are indwelt and kept by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when sins come into your mind and say, well, maybe a, a, a Christian should never think those things. Maybe I'm not saved. You can say, no, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb because I was chosen in Christ by the Father and I've been re born again by the Spirit. And he works in me to do uh, his will. He made me willing to trust him. He gave me a new heart. I'm a new creature. The, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind in those things. I am safe in him. And I will trust him and I will rest in him. And praise God for his grace. And you can thank the Lord for his sovereign grace. And you can thank the Lord for his mercy and his kindness to us. And rest in Christ. And not have to always be looking over your shoulder, or maybe I'm going to fall, maybe I'm going to slip, maybe I'm going to uh, be cast aside, but look to Christ and cling to Christ with the faith that you, that, that you receive by grace and know that the Spirit works in us to will and to do His good pleasure. And so this is a very comforting doctrine. It's a gracious doctrine. It's a loving doctrine of our God to save us fully and completely and to the uttermost. I pray the Lord 
has, uh, has blessed tonight and given you some assurance in salvation, some comfort in the, the doctrine, and just praise God for what he's done for us. What, what a Savior. What a salvation we have.